If you've been in church any length of time, you know that Samson is probably the most well-known or one of the most well-known Bible characters that there is. I mean, even if you haven't been in church, if you go into any art galleries or anything like that, you can see pictures of this strong man depicted by some great artist down throughout history. There, there's probably been um, much uh, written about Samson uh, and his, his incredible strength, and not only his incredible strength, but his incredible fall. See, Samson was an individual that was empowered by the Spirit, but dominated by the flesh. He was empowered by the Spirit, but dominated by the flesh. He was a tragic hero whose amazing deeds are overshadowed by his disastrous failures in life. Have you ever met somebody or you've seen somebody or maybe you've seen a document, uh, documentary on someone whose life they seem to have it all, but because of constant mistakes and missteps and poor decisions, they ended their life in total disaster? That is Samson to a T. He is, he is one that you could say had it all and then lost it all. He's one who teaches us that great beginnings don't necessitate great endings. Just because you start life off the right way doesn't mean that you're going to continue that way. Samson is a prime example of this. See, God freed the nation of Israel from slavery. And I want us to take a look just for a few minutes to understand how the fall of Samson happened. Take a quick look at the time in which he lived. The nation of Israel had been freed from slavery from the Egyptians after over 400 years. Moses was their leader for some time and, and then he died and then Joshua came on the scene and Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, the land that God had promised them. God's people were a people that were called out. They, they were to be a holy people. They were to live pure lives. They were ones who were to worship the one true God. And that's the reason why, one of the reasons why God freed them from the slavery. But that all soon changes. They're in the promised land. They've received the promise that God had, at least partially have received the promise that God had given to them. But now Joshua is dead. There's no more leadership. And things for the nation of Israel have quickly, very quickly gone downhill. I want you to turn to the, in the book of Judges to Judges chapter 21, if you would please. Judges chapter 21. Because I, I want you to see how really the whole nation of Israel during this time of Judges is summed up right here in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone or every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That sums up the book of Judges and the nation of Israel at this time. This one verse, it shows the moral standing 
of the people of Israel. They were totally pragmatic. You know what they said? If it works, do it. If it makes you feel good, do it. If it's truth to you, then it's truth. See, it's whatever is true to you. And you know what? When you start to look at the nation of Israel, it sounds a lot like America today. Now remember, the nation of Israel was on a downward spiral. The book of Judges covers about 300 years in the nation in the life of Israel. It's a record of what happens to a nation. Now listen, it's a record of what happens to a nation when a nation depends on its own sense of morality instead of the truth of God's word. When a nation depends upon its own morality instead of the truth of God's word. Friends, let me repeat to you. I've said this before. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's God's truth. And when a nation depends upon its own morality, there can only be one direction that a nation will go in. And that's down. There's a great sin that's revealed all throughout this book. And we find this sin is found in the cycle that happens over and over and over again in Judges. You can read it and it's just like, man, it's just repeating itself. There's sin. There's slavery. There's a cry to God. There's deliverance. There's security. Then there's sin. There's slavery. There's, uh, there's a cry to God. There is, there is salvation or redemption or deliverance. And then there's security. And God, the way that this happened would be that God would use judges to set the people free from slavery and oppression from their enemies. And then they would live right for a while. You, you remember... If I were to say 9-11, 2001, remember how God was, is banned from all of society? Prayer is banned from all of society? Oh man, but when, but when things start to go wrong for America, when things start to look bad for America, when great disaster hits America, what do we do? We cry out to the one person who we don't want anything to do with when we're prospering. Oh, it's okay to mention God and, and it's okay to invoke prayer at these times. We are no different than the nation of Israel. This is exactly where Samson comes on the scene. Well, what happened is after they are freed from their slavery... They get some security, and guess what they do? The judge dies, the leadership dies, and then they go right back into sin. And this is where Samson's brought in. Israel, at this point, when Samson's brought in, Israel's been underneath the oppression of the Philistines for some time. 
And God allowed the Philistines in the book of Judges to oppress Israel for 40 years. It is the longest span of oppression in the book of Judges. Out of the 300 years, 40 years of that oppression it is the longest of all the judgments for God's people in this book. Samson ruled 20 of those 40 years. What I find interesting is that there are four whole chapters devoted to the life and leadership, if you want to call it that, leadership, of Samson. Take a look at Judges chapter 13 again and verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. I want you to notice a phrase that is so often mentioned in the book of Judges. Take a look. It says, and the children of Israel, those three words, did evil again. And then it says, the Bible tells us here that the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. You know, so many times we look at something like that and we think, oh, well, God just delivered them over to, to their captors or God just delivered them over to their enemies. You know what God's saying here? He's saying, God's saying that he literally surrendered his people over to the power of the Philistines. Over to the power of the Philistines. God took the nation of Israel out of his protective hand and allowed the harsh, cruel, and evil hand of the Philistines to oppress them. Listen up, America. Listen up, Christian friend. Remember, Samson and the nation of Israel, Samson was a man who was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but he was dominated by the flesh. I want you to think about this being turned over to the hands of the enemy. This is huge. It's huge. I want you to turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is a story that is also very popular. If I mention the word David, two things you will invariably think of. One, you will either think of David and Goliath or David and All right. 2 Samuel chapter 24, take a look at verse 14. David had sinned with Bathsheba, and Samuel gave David three choices of, of judgment. Take a look at what David said. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. What did God do to the nation of Israel? He delivered the nation of Israel into the hand or over to the power of the Philistines. You say, Pastor, what's the point? What are you getting at? Listen to this, friend. It is better to be in the disciplining hand of God than the destructive hand of man. It is better to be underneath the disciplining hand of God than to be underneath the destructive hand of man. And the Philistines, they represented God's enemy at their most powerful in every area. And they were superior to Israel in every area. And God called upon Samson to be the judge during this era. But he never completed the job. 
But God used Samson in spite of his inconsistency and impulsive behavior. I want you to take a look at some pictures that God gives us about Samson this morning. Number one, God's picture of salvation in the birth of Samson. God's picture of salvation in the birth of Samson. Take a look at verses 2 and 3, if you would please, of Judges chapter 13. Verses 2 and 3. It says there, and there was a man, I believe, of Zorah. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. A few moments ago I told you about the cycle, but there's something missing here. There's something missing in the cycle this morning. The major part that's missing in between these two verses is that we never find people crying out for deliverance. You can find it with the other judges where they're underneath oppression. The people, the people of Israel underneath oppression and, and, and they're crying out for deliverance. They're asking God, God, would you please deliver us? Not here. You say, well, what do you, what do you believe that the word of God is trying to show us here? The lesson for us to know about salvation is that if we were ever going to be saved, it wasn't because we sought after God, but because he sought us. God's picture of salvation in the birth of Samson. You say, well, wait a second. I don't know if that's really true. You know what? We find this in the first book of the Bible. The same picture in Genesis chapter 3. We find that God comes seeking Adam. Adam doesn't seek after God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, and the Lord God called unto, unto Adam and said, where art thou? Verse 10, he says, I heard thy voice in the garden and I hid myself because I was naked and afraid. Adam didn't, after Adam and Eve committed sin, they didn't go seeking after God. What were they doing? They were hiding in the bushes somewhere. They didn't want anything to do with God. God had to come seeking after them. Not only do we find it in the Old Testament, but we find it in the New Testament. It was God who sent Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ said, I've come to seek and to save them which are lost. See, the lesson for us to know about salvation is that if we were ever going to be saved, it's not because God's, we sought after God, but God sought after us. Here's the next lesson you might want to write down about the picture of salvation in Samson's birth. Here you go. The lesson is that deliverance is not going to come from someone among us. God is going to have to give a deliverer through a miraculous birth. If you notice in the, uh, in the, with all the judges, what you find here is that every single judge was already among the people. And God called that judge out. But with Samson, he was called to be a judge before his birth. 
Samson is the only judge that his birth was predicted. Samson is the only judge that had a miraculous birth. It said that his mother was barren. That means she could not have children. God had to touch her, if you will, so that that way she could have children. This reminds me of another miraculous birth that we're getting ready to celebrate. It was a virgin, not that she was barren, but there was a virgin called Mary. Some over 2,000 years ago, who an angel visited because there was no deliverer among the people. It had to come from outside of them in order for them to be delivered from their sins. You say, well, what's the third lesson in the picture of God's salvation through Samson's birth? The third lesson is that God offers his salvation to a people who do not deserve salvation. God offers salvation to a people who do not deserve salvation. One, one preacher said it this way, God does not love the lovely. He makes lovely those he loves. He does not save the strong. He makes strong those he saves. He does not choose the righteous. He makes righteous those he chooses. Which means this morning, no matter who you are or what circumstance you find yourself or what sins you've committed, or what weakness you feel, there is hope for you. But let me tell you something. That hope's not going to be found in yourself. That hope's not going to be found in anything you can offer to God. That hope's not going to be found in any religious figure. Listen, my friend, I know that in this area we've got a lot of good Catholic people, and you may be of the Catholic persuasion and let me tell you, I'm not trying to disparage any, any um, good religious upbringing that you, you have uh, um, had in your life. But let me tell you something. The Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, the Baptist Church is not going to save you. It's only Jesus Christ and Him alone. You say, is there any other lessons? Yes, there is. Another lesson is that from the picture, God's picture of salvation through the birth of Samson is this, that God has set his love and affection on me. You say, where do you see that? Why did um, God choose Manoah's wife? As a matter of fact, her name is not even mentioned. I think that's important to show the obscurity of this woman. She's not even recognized. Guess what? There aren't too many people in here that are recognized by the world out there. We don't have our name up in lights. Uh, we, we're not known throughout the world. We're not some great star. People, doesn't, people don't know the name George Riddell or John Smith or whoever you want to put it. They don't know your name. But the point is that though the world may not know your name, God does. And he comes to the obscure. He sets his affection on the obscure. He puts his love upon the nameless. And say, so why did he choose that woman? Just because he did. He loved that woman and a nation that turned their back on him. And guess what? 
Since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he, set, he has set his love and affection upon you that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what's the second picture I see? God's picture, not only of salvation in the birth of Samson, but I see God's picture of separation in the vow of Samson. Take a look at verses uh, four and five, if you would, please. Verses four and five. God's picture of separation in the vow of Samson. Now, therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. God placed upon the life of Samson a special call, a special call of separation. It's called, you might have heard this, a Nazarite vow. It's called a Nazarite vow. It's something, it's something that is, it is, is very, very serious. But this Nazarite vow is different than any other Nazarite vow that we see. You say, well, what was that? why is it different? Well, first, God placed upon the vow, uh, God placed the vow upon Samson before his birth. Before he was ever born, that vow was placed upon him. And second, the vow was a lifelong vow. Most of the time, when somebody took the Nazarite vow, what they would do is they would bring it upon themselves. But God placed this vow on Samson. You need to remember that. So most of the time when somebody made a Nazarite vow, they took it upon themselves. They made that vow unto God. Secondly, it was only for a short time period. It wasn't a lifelong vow. This vow that God placed upon Samson was a lifelong vow. You say, well, what is the Nazarite vow? I'm glad you asked. Well, the Bible tells us a couple things about the Nazarite vow. Number one, no alcohol. It says no wine, nothing from the vine, no strong drink. Number two, you couldn't eat anything that was unclean according to the Jewish law. Number three, you could not touch dead bodies, be around dead bodies. Number four, I was good all the way up until this point. You could not cut your hair. Some of you with me could not take this Nazarite vow. <laughs> you say, well, what's the deal with the hair thing, Pastor? It was, a, it was a mark that you were set apart. It was a mark, you need to remember that, that you were set apart for God. But I want you to understand something, because this is key about the Nazarite vow. You may want to write this down if you're taking notes. The Nazarite vow was not just a list of things that one could not do. You say, well, what, what was the purpose of the Nazarite vow? It was an outward expression, here we go, of an inward dedication to God. It was an outward expression of inward dedication to God. This person was seen to be visibly separated 
to God. I want you to turn over to 1 John. The point is clear for us as believers this morning. When we accept Christ as our personal Savior, we've taken on the name Christian. We've taken on the name Christ follower. And God's picture of separation in the vow of Samson can apply to us as well. When we accept Christ as our personal Savior, there's to be a separation from the world. Look, friends, as believers, we are not to try and get as close to the world as possible. If this table represents the world, we are not to conform our life that we would be so that we could be so close to this table that we would be unrecognizable. As believers, because we've had the new birth, there's to be a separation. So we are to position ourselves to be further away from the world. Not that we don't interact with the world. Not that we don't try and win the world to Christ. But the things that we do, the places that we go, the things that we listen to, the things that that we're involved in is to be different than the world. The priorities that we have are to be different than the world. The things that we work for or go after are to be different than the world. I've often said, and I'll say it again, you cannot follow the American dream You cannot go after the American dream and say that you are walking in the will of God at the same time. You say, why can't you do that? Go after the American dream and say that you're walking in the will of God at the same time because they are diametrically opposed. The world says, get all that you can. The world says live for today. The world says promote yourself. The world says you got to climb that ladder. God says give all you can. God says be humble. God says put others in front of yourself. They're diametrically opposed. God says don't live for yourself, live for me. The world says live for yourself. You only got one life. No, you don't. So for us as believers, we're to be separate from the world. Take a look at 1 John chapter 2, if you would please. And verse 15. I want you to look at the first sentence. Love not the world neither the things that are in the world. You say, well, pastor, why, why, why are we to live separated? You just don't, you know, maybe there's some young people in here, you're like, you just don't want us to have any fun. No. Well, pastor, you know, it's just because you're older and you're out of it, you know. Like, you, you don't know what's going on and well, maybe I don't, but I do know what the Bible says. 
And you just don't understand. It's the 21st century. And, you know, you know boys will be boys. And we got to sow our wild oats. And all teenagers are rebellious anyway. Not according to the word of God. So, why would you want us to live separate? Listen, because a life of separation was to help show people who were in bondage the way to deliverance. That's the reason Samson was supposed to be different. That he, was to be, he was to be able to be the leader, to be able to lead these people out of bondage, the oppression of the Philistines, so that that way they could be free. And for us as believers, the reason that we're to be different is because we're to show the world that there is something better. That You know what? Our theme really is true. Jesus is better. His way is better. Following God is is better is to show people who are in bondage and in deli- uh, to be to be able to know how to be delivered because they'll ask you why do you live the way that you do you say well pastor people don't ask me that nothing like telling on yourself but i want you to notice something else take a look at verse 5. Something very interesting. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Did anything jump out at you? There's just one word that really jumps out at me. It really should catch your attention. You say, what's that? The word begin. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. He doesn't complete the job. Samson will begin the deliverance, but he will not complete the deliverance. You say, why is that? I believe it's because that Samson was used to be able to point us to a greater judge. I believe Samson is being used to be able to point us to the ultimate deliverer, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. See, even though later on David delivered the, the people of Israel from the Philistines, they were never ever conquer, they never ever fully conquered their enemies. It took thousands of years later for a man to be born of a virgin to be able to deliver his people. This morning. Samson was a man who was empowered by the Spirit, but dominated by the flesh. Let me ask you something. If you know Christ is your personal Savior, 
You are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Bible plainly teaches us that. But what's dominating you? What's dominating you? You say, well, how do I know? You have to come back tonight to find out. <laughs> Samson's the weakest strong man in the Bible. I wonder how many of us Christians this morning if we were truly dominated by the Spirit could see God use us not only to begin something but to complete something. There's nothing worse than when you drive past the building that was started. But all that's up is just the show. You say, that's a shame. They never got to complete it. They must have ran out of money or something must have happened. Something devastating must have happened. They never completed the job. Let me tell you something. If, if you know Christ your personal Savior, it's not because you don't have enough of the Holy Spirit to be able to complete the job. The reason you don't complete the job is because the Holy Spirit doesn't have enough of you. This morning, what are we dominated by? The Spirit or the flesh? What a sad story. You ought to read the rest of it. It goes all the way up through chapter 16 of the book of Judges. I'm telling you, Samson never got it. He never got it. You say, how do you know that? It was always about Samson. Even in his death, it was about Samson. You say, how do you know? Lord, just give me power this one more time to avenge my two eyes of the Philistines. It wasn't, Lord, give me power one more time so that you can be magnified through my life in my death. He was concerned about the avenging of his two eyes. He never got it. I'm not saying God didn't use him even as a death. He did use him. I wonder how many of us, God is saying, when are you going to get it? When are you going to get it? It's not about you. It's about me. Empowered by the Spirit, dominated by the flesh.